You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivilevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is a special Tshuva Supoiskim. I have called on my friend, Rabbi Michael Broid, who is a person who can talk about a very difficult subject, a subject that uh, is on many people's minds in the Western world, uh, and that is the uh, intersection of international law with Jewish law. Uh, we are involved, it, it is a Shas Mocham at this point, and these questions are not just theoretical. Rabbi Broid uh, graciously agreed to take from his time, which is quite limited, in order to enlighten us. Rabbi Broid, thank you again for 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 this, and I'm sure that all of us will will benefit greatly from what you have to say. Thank you very much for for inviting me to speak. The topic that we're going to talk about today is um, important and hard. It's important and hard because we all recognize that Israel is in a war, and not only is it in a war, it's in a war in a heavily populated civilian area. And to the war in which we know for sure innocence of the women will be killed. This is not the American Civil War, where in the Battle of Gettysburg, about 250,000 soldiers met on a battlefield that had been demarcated in advance. About one in every five soldiers was killed, wounded, or missing. Very high casualty rate, and only one civilian was killed in the Battle of Gettysburg because the battlefield had been Marked off, and the civilians were evacuated. One stray civilian was killed in a random fluke accident, and the battle stopped for a few small minutes while all the soldiers paid tribute to the fact that the innocents had died. Israel is forced against its will and without its consent to do battle in a heavily populated civilian area in which innocent civilians will be killed. I reject preemptively the view that you find occasionally expressed, not in my view by any significant Jewish law authorities, which say even the one-year-olds in the Gaza Strip are not innocent civilians because they might grow up to be terrorists. Jewish law doesn't work that way. Um, We recognize that there are innocent civilians here. And we do not say about a one-year-old growing up in in the Gaza Strip, that they can be killed because they might, at some future date, grow up to be a terrorist. Well, also, it doesn't work that way. Um, we recognize that something very sad needs to take place, which is a battle needs to be fought in an urban area, and in this urban battlefield, we have no choice but to kill innocent civilians in order to accomplish our valid military goals. And that should make us cry, and it should make us sad. Um, but as we'll see in the course of this conversation, it should not deter the government of Israel like it did not deter the government of the United States or the allies in World War II or anybody else in any other military setting um, from accomplishing their essential military goals. And it's important to lay out the basic rules of Jewish law here. In halacha, war is essentially different. Basic halachot do not apply from murder on down. 
And the framework that Jewish law uses to discuss these halachic issues is essentially in, in wartime as it is in every other situation. As the Tzitz Eliezer famously points out in a series of Chuvot about Pidyon Shvuyan, the rules of Pidyon Shvuyan don't apply in wartime. The government is authorized to make hard choices in wartime for the benefit of the whole that is otherwise not permitted. And it starts in this very logical way. If war were just Hilfog Rodin, writ large, instead of one person coming to kill me, 50 people come to kill me and my 49 friends, the rules would be very different because the rules of Rodin are fairly clear. You are not allowed to kill innocent people in order to save your own life. So if I'm a policeman, and a bank robber is shooting at me with a phalanx of hostages in front of me. And the only way I can realistically kill the bank robber um, is by shooting through the hostages. Jewish law is clear that I may not kill a hostage in order to kill a bad person. I can run, I can hide, I can dodge, um, but I cannot kill an innocent person um, to save my own life. I am simply not allowed to do that. It, it's clear in wartime that Halakha permits um, the killing of people who would not, for one technical reason or another, be considered aerobic. And the explanation for this is very important. War isn't waged by me or you or my six friends against your 12 friends. It's a societal activity, as Rabbi Yaakov Ariel puts it. It cannot be declared by a person. It can only be declared by a government. And it cannot be declared by one individual. And thus, when you hear words, sometimes even words from governmental officials, like a mullet, you have to take them in a social rather than a legal sense. A mullet is an individual theme upon each and every one of us, and it is genocidal. We are not permitted to intentionally kill innocent civilians in wartime as a matter of retaliation or rebellion. No matter what evil is done to us, we are not allowed to line up innocent babies at the end of a war and murder them in order to retaliate. That genocidal activity is essentially prohibited in Jewish law other than in these narrow situations that don't exist in pre-Messianic or post-Nevoa time. It's true that the Torah wages a war against the Malik that can't be defended in the current terms of international law, except to say that the Torah limits these kinds of wars to situations in which there's a Navi and God's presence is ever-present in this world. Milchama, war, permits the government to engage in its long-term interest and um, sacrifice people as needed, kill some of the enemy as needed, and save some of the enemy as needed, kill people who are not broken but who are in the way, steal as needed, and maybe even engage in sexual sin as needed, 
Um, and certainly torture as needed. Let me give you an example um, so that you can understand. If I were to tell you to avoid a war, we would send the spy in who would kill the lead enemy general, and that would avoid the war. You would have no doubt that Halakha would permit that activity in wartime. If I were to say to you, instead of doing that, um, we could send a spy in to seduce the general and um, then discredit the general through the act of seduction so the war would not take place. Does anybody doubt that that is mutter as well? In general, I'm inclined to think that Jewish law accepts the following idea. Since murder is permitted in wartime, every sin less than murder is permitted in wartime as well. And if killing the enemy general is what is needed to prevent the war from breaking out, if I were to tell you instead of killing the enemy general, we could just torture him until he revealed the plans, and that would prevent the war from breaking out, does anybody really doubt that Jewish law as a native legal system permits this as well? The wholesale suspension of law required to fight a war is undoubtedly permitted in Halakha, again, with a very large caveat written in very big letters, so long as it's authorized by the government and necessary in order to accomplish valid military goals. No gratuitous torture, no playful sexuality, um, no killing of people for entertainment, but valid military purpose and sometimes require all three of these be done and other things as well. Sometimes looting is a valid military strategy as well to undercut the enemy's economic ability to wage war. All of these are undoubtedly permitted according to Halakha, um, simply because war permits killing, it permits anything less than killing when that is necessary to accomplish its goal. Of course, Halakha has a Jewish version of the Catholic just war theory. Or maybe, if I were in a better mood, I would say the Catholic tradition has a Catholic version of the Jewish just war theory, which is found in the Mishnayas and elaborated on by Rambam and the Rishonim. There are three kinds of war implicitly. There is saving the nation, which is an obligatory war, there are authorized wars, which is wars that are discretionary and permitted to be declared by the government. And then, of course, implied but unstated in the Rambam, there are prohibited wars. Wars that are neither obligatory nor authorized are definitionally prohibited. And saving the nation from an attack without a shadow of a doubt, from even the most casual read of the Rambam, is an obligatory war. In an obligatory war, as the Arach HaShulchan Ha'atid notes, everybody may be drafted at the discretion of the government. Not everybody has to be drafted, because, of course, governments, as they consider drafting policy, they leave some people at home. I am 59. I was in Israel when the war was declared. I did not immediately enlist. I did go to the local nursing home to help serve meals, because all the people who were serving the elderly 
were drafted. I am a bad candidate to draft because of my age. But yet, the government can direct me to do other things that are vital to the war effort, like serving food to the frail or picking up the garbage. As the author Tolkien puts it, it's a militarizing of the economy. And in a militarizing of the economy, of course, some people are drafted to serve in the military, and other people are drafted to serve in a nursing home, and other people are drafted to deliver milk. And of course, other distinctions abound between an authorized war and an obligatory war, but we are discussing here today an obligatory war. Israel was attacked, um, and it needs to prevent a further attack, and it needs to save itself from its enemies who are oppressing it. It is a classical definition of an obligatory war. And of course, violations of ritual halakha are permitted as needed to fight the war. I don't know what those are, and every situation is different. But a long time ago, halakha recognized that you can be machala of Shabbat to fight, fight a war. And presumably, if need be, you can eat chametz to fight a war. And presumably, if need be, you can eat on Yom Kippur to fight a war. And you certainly need not light Hanukkah candles. Lighting Hanukkah candles reveals your position to your neighbor, and so on and so forth. Just like serious violations of halacha are suspended in in wartime, serious mitzvot say are suspended in wartime as well as um, is militarily needed. Of course, military need is judged situationally, and there's no doubt that every situation is exactly different. Uh, the books about Jewish soldiers in World War II recount that many halakhic authorities, and perhaps even the elder repenting, told soldiers who went to Europe not to take their tefillin with them because they were not sure what would happen to Jewish soldiers who were captured in Europe um, with tefillin in their bag, and they thought it was a matter of pikuach nefesh. On the other hand, if you were sent to the Pacific, you were told, take your tefillin with you if you can, um, because it wasn't viewed as a danger with your tefillin or without. With hindsight, we understand that Jewish soldiers who were captured by the Germans were generally not mistreated, so I don't want to second-guess anybody's judgment, but everybody needs to do what they think is needed in the times that they need to do them. Battlefield ethic, on the other hand, which is how to fight the war, is a dramatic and profound dispute among halachic authorities in the 20th century. Starting a war and stopping a war is a question of when to declare war and when to stop a war. But battlefield ethics is about what can I do when a war has been declared and I am uh, fighting the battle as, as the battle needs to be fought. There are really, among contemporary halakhic authorities, five views taken in the 20th century. And five great giants of halakha, or in my view, six great giants of halakha, took very clear stands on this issue, varying from, if you'll excuse me, the far right to the far left. Um, Rabbi Lazar 
And Menachem Shach, the great Jewish law authority in Panovich, was of the view that there is no category called Heter Mohammed in the battlefield ethics situation, and everything followed the rules of Rode. You could shoot at people who were shooting at you, and you could not shoot at people who were not shooting at you, and it was exactly no different than a Rode situation. You shot at people who shot at you. Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, in his famous response, says that view is incorrect. The proper way to understand battlefield ethics is to look closely at the Rambam's Mishnah Torah and Hilchot Malachim, Hu Milcham the rules of kings and their wars. And in the rules of kings and their wars, battlefield ethics are laid out, including the idea that we should let the enemy flee um, when they are surrounded and that we should not lay siege on all four sides. Uh, that is Rabbi Goren's point is, is that a close read of the Rama in the Mishnah Torah produces not only a conversation about when war may be declared, but as well, the Rambam lays out rules on how to fight the war. And that Rabbi Goren said that the Jewish army of the Jewish state needs to follow the halacha about battlefield ethics. And Rabbi Goren wrote this not in some abstract intellectual conversation, but he wrote it about the siege of Beirut, saying that Jewish law requires that we let people flee during the siege of Beirut when Israel was in Lebanon. Directly contrary to that, strode the great giant Rabbi Shaul Yisraeli. Rabbi Shaul Yisraeli in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s and the the early 1980s repeatedly revisited the conversation about battlefield ethics with one theme in mind. Rabbi Yisraeli said, as I implied to you above, that there is no Jewish law of battlefield ethics. Um, Heter Mochama, the license to fight a war, includes the right to kill people as needed to win the war, and the right to do anything less than kill people as needed to win the war. What then are the limitations of war, Rabbi Yisraeli says? Of course there are limitations. Rabbi Yisraeli says those limitations are the limitations of international law. Israel has signed a variety of treaties. And these treaties are binding on the Jewish state by contract. And we have signed treaties with our neighbors in which we agree on how we will conduct war. And these treaties are binding on us. What Rabbi Israeli refers to as the Geneva Convention, but it's really much more than the Geneva Convention. Rabbi Yisraeli's point goes as follows. There are no natural native limitations on war in the Halakhic tradition. What there are are agreements between the parties as to how to fight the war and what will be done. And when you enter into an agreement as to how to fight the war, you are bound by your agreement. 
And as Rabbi Yisraeli points out, Egypt, during the Yom Kippur War, adhered to the Geneva Convention, and Israel adhered to the Geneva Convention as well with regard to Egyptian prisoners. As we know, after the Yom Kippur War, there were prisoner exchanges with Egypt. Egypt adhered to the Geneva Convention, and so did Israel. Prisoners were taken to prisoner of war camps, and they were released after the war. And the same thing is true um, with Jordan at other moments and at other times. But Syria was not a signatory to any of the Geneva Conventions. It did not adhere to the Geneva Conventions itself. And Halakha does not require that Israel adhere to the Geneva Convention in its fights with Syria. Rabbi Yisraeli's point is very profound. There are many areas of Halakha in which Halakha says, do what the secular law requires that you do here. This is not a foreign concept in Halakha. This is an application of Dina de Malfusadina. The law of the land is the law. And just like we defer to the law of the land on many questions, zoning questions, feeding questions, so many other questions, Halakha defers to the law of the land, which is not national law, but international law when it comes to fighting war. And when you want to ask us why are bullets permitted, but poison gas is not permitted, it's not because that's found in the Rambam. It's because there's a Geneva Convention signed by Israel saying Israel agrees not to use poison gas, and so do these many other countries that are signatory. And when you ask, is there anything in Jewish law that naturally says being killed by poison gas is worse than being shot by a bullet? Jewish law says no. But Israel agreed it would not use poison gas. And Israel's neighbors who it goes to war to agreed that they would not use poison gas either. This is a very important idea. Normally, Dina de Machusadina is you are part of a country. And because that country provides you with the, the life services, you become subject to the rules of that country, even if, for example, they run counter in some measure to Jewish law or Jewish halach and choshen mishpat especially. Here, when it's international, I think you have a harder case to apply regular dina de dina. And a follow-up, I know you're going to respond. I, I, I thought that the precedent for the Geneva Convention or any of these conve- of these agreements was the shvua that was made to the Givonim that Yoshua adhered to, even though uh, once the subterfuge was found out, Al-Pihalacha, you might have thought he could have killed them as being some of the Shiva'amim, but since he signed this Haskoma, uh, he was bound by that. Two wonderful observations. You're totally correct. Dina de Malfusadina is just a shorthand. In fact, on a technical level, it's not governed by Dina Malfusadina, it's governed by treaty law. The Rambam makes clear that just like Dina Malfusadina governs an individual, treaty law governs a nation. So on some technical level, international law isn't governed by Dina Malfusadina, it's governed by treaty law. 
but it reaches the same result. So I was just using Gimdam of Lusadina as a shorthand for expressing the idea that Jewish law requires that people and nations obey treaties that they sign. Now, the central question, of course, here is whether treaty law applies to non-treaty combatants. You're going to hear over and over again in one version of the popular press that international law is binding on you when the other side does not maintain that international law is binding on them. But it is not the position of the government of the United States, and it is not the position of the government of Israel, and it is not the position of most European governments that international treaties are applicable to non-state combatants who are non-signatories of the convention. And this is not a question of halakha. This is essentially a question of international law. The United States government did not treat the Taliban prisoners as prisoners of war under the Geneva Convention. And when you ask them why, they said, because the government in Afghanistan had surrendered already. And we had signed a peace treaty with them, and the Taliban fighters were not representing the government in Afghanistan, which had surrendered. These were instead criminals, to use a technical term. Um, this is a very important idea. It's fairly clear as a matter of international law that international war law does not apply to a band of criminals it did not apply to the Red Army in Germany in 1973. They were deemed terrorists and not uh, a nation. It did not apply to the Taliban after the surrender of the Afghanistan government in the United States. And it certainly does not apply to Hamas. Part of the reason why nations have hesitated to recognize Hamas is exactly for this reason. There is no legally recognized government in the Gaza Strip. There's an ongoing question, both in Israel and in the rest of the world, as to whether the Palestinian Authority is an internationally recognized body. For some purposes, Israel recognizes the PA as valid participants in international law, and for some not, and the same thing is true in the United States. But no nation, to the best of my knowledge, recognizes Hamas as the government of the Gaza Strip. Hamas is not a signatory to international conventions. Indeed, they are repeated regular violators of these international conventions. And I have no doubt that Rabbi Yisraeli would be of the view that international law does not technically apply in this situation. And can I bring a proof to the fact that Rabbi Yisraeli is correct? Matsati Chaver. I found somebody who agrees with Rabbi Yisraeli. It is not unusual. Rabbi Yisraeli was loaded with Talmidim who agreed with him. The whole Eretz Femda Institute is made up of his disciples. But the late great Rabbi Moshe Feinstein says what Rabbi Yisraeli says as well. And I am sure, at least I'm fairly sure, that Rav Moshe didn't uh, read it in one of Rav Yisraeli's psakim. It was Rav Moshe's style. 
not to read contemporary Israeli authorities. Um, and if you said to me, Rav Moshe says this because he saw it in the Tzitz Eliezer, I would express utter amazement. Rav Moshe, in Igris Moshe, Yoridea, Felix Bez, Zimon Kufnen, Nun Chet, 158, says as a Dabar Pashu, that when a person is ordered by the government of the United States to join the army, and he kills while he's in the army, he did no sin, and he's obligated um, to do so, and there's no prohibition for a Kohen who's a soldier in the American army who kills under military orders to do so, because this is a killing that was ordered by the government. And the reason why Rav Moshe knows this is because this, the killing of the Nazis in World War II was permitted by international law. He adopts the same view as Rabbi Yisraeli, which is what determines whether a soldier is permitted or prohibited to kill is whether the local government, the government is fighting a, a war that is permitted by international law. So what does this mean in the real world? Does it mean we should leave one side open for people to play? I guess the halachic answer goes as follows. If we could limit those people who flee to those who are totally and completely certifiably innocent, um, halacha would support allowing totally innocent people to flee. I yearn for the days of my childhood when I used to watch Batman on television where the bad guys wore a t-shirt that said bad man on it. And you could readily distinguish the good guys from the bad guys as a little child. In the real world, as Rabbi Yisraeli says, allowing everybody to flee out of Beirut would be very bad for the goals of the Israeli army. Opening borders is something that Israel has to decide is militarily wise, not um, is commanded by a simplistic lead of the Rambam. Killing innocent people by accident, um, Rabbi Yisraeli's point is that that's a necessary sad activity in war. When Israel decides that a target needs to be bombed because it's a valid military target and it lacks the weapons to only target the military target, it is no different than the United States Air Force in World War II or the United States military in Vietnam, or the launching of rockets by cruise missiles by President Obama or President Clinton or President Trump. Military weapons do not have a secret in them that lets them examine your heart before the shrapnel kills you. But there is a military target, the innocent people who are near the military target, we cry over their death, but sad over the fact that you have to kill them, and it is a tragedy, but the tragedy is not ours. The tragedy is by those who target, who put themselves near innocent civilians while they act in a military capacity. We do not relish having to kill innocent civilians, but we recognize that a modern urban war cannot be fought without some civilian casualties. Can we kill innocent people on purpose? I think the answer is no. Um, there is no targeting of innocent civilians. 
you cannot say they killed our babies, so we will kill their babies. I know that there's a quote from the Rav in 1955 where the Rav said, vengeance is a valid military goal, but I think the Rav was talking in a military setting against soldiers and not in a civilian setting against civilian targets. The idea that they killed our babies when they invaded, so we should kill their babies when we have conquered them is repugnant to Jewish values and um, should not be done. Stealing, I think stealing is necessary to accomplish a military goal, like part of the economic incapacity uh, of the, your opponent, blowing up military supplies, blowing up fuel, which might be used for military supplies, but might also be used to power a generator that allows surgery on a one-year-old who needs surgery is a valid military activity because fuel, like currency, is a fungible commodity. We do not know what the fuel will be used for. It is a military supply and need not be provided by our enemies since we do not believe them when they tell us that um, this will only be used for civilian purposes. Rabbi uh, Broy, let me raise a point that... Uh that you haven't necessarily touched on, although it might be implied. And that is uh, something that I read by my good friend Chaim Jachter in his essays on this topic. There is another cheshbam, which is that we have a method of bombing from the air, which is less of a sakana to Jewish lives, but is more of a sakana to the civilian population. And then there is the risk factor involved in sending in infantry troops where the damage to the civilian population is less, but you endanger more Jewish lives. And therefore, there's there's that alternative. In other words, we could, if we bomb from the air, yes, if that's the only way we can attack that military outpost because we're bombing from the air. But since we could conceivably have more accuracy by going into this urban setting, but we would be putting more Jewish lives at risk. I think that that's a military and not a halakhic calculus. Uh, I think that so long as we are targeting military targets, we can consider civilian casualties. After all, um, eventually we want the war to end and we want to make peace with the other side in some way. And considering the level of damage as part of that process. I don't believe Halakha requires that Israel target military targets in a way that endangers its soldiers at a greater expense than needs to be to preserve civilians on the other side, even though that's a heart-wrenching calculus to make. I don't believe Halakha requires that, but do not confuse that with the conscious targeting of civilian targets. The conscious targeting of civilian targets is not permitted in Jewish law, uh, even though the conscious targeting of military targets in a way that we know will produce, sadly enough, civilian casualties is permissible. I want to observe something hard that you hinted at here, and that I gasped my good friend at Fabrizio for almost a decade, many years ago, into that as well. And it's President Clinton who was famous for saying, you can't make peace with your friends. You have to make peace with your enemies. And as we wage war against our enemies, we recognize that a time will come when we want to try to make peace in some way. And the level of damage you inflict on their civilian population 
correlates in some way with our ability to make peace with them in a complex calculus that doesn't have simple answers and is not mandated by Halakha. Rabbi, is you know, I, I sense that you're winding down. Is there anybody who wants to uh, put forth a question to Rabbi Broid before we sign off? Please do. Okay, so I see there are some questions in the chat. Rabbi, all asked, would this be a universally accepted Mohammed mitzvah according to all definitions so that it require even those running full-time to consider signing up to serve in the IDF? The answer is no. I want to explain to you why. Serving in the IVF is not like delivering milk. It requires considerable training, so much so that as the war started, the IVF stopped training recruits who are in the middle of their training process because manpower shortages. You cannot just volunteer on Tuesday to serve on Wednesday. You cannot say, today I am a buffer in the mirror and tomorrow I am flying F-16. It is of little use for the Army have Bachrim in yeshiva volunteer to serve in combat units on 45 minutes training. But it would be very useful and good for Israeli society if Bachrim in yeshiva stepped out to help in the running of organized society. It took me 15 minutes to learn how to serve meals in a nursing home. And I'm no smarter than any of the Bachrim in the mirror. I can assure you, and if I could learn how to serve meals in a nursing home, um, so can they. At the time that you need to be drafted to do a Mohammed mitzvah, it's too late to receive training. It's even too late to receive training to do low-level shmirah, I suspect. But it's not too late to do training to learn how to collect garbage. Ravar Lichtenstein, who I think had no military training until the Yom Kippur War, learned quickly how to deliver milk. And I suspect everybody else can as well. When I was in Israel, I spent as much of my time as I could doing social services. The B'nai Yeshiva should step out of Yeshiva and do good things to help society run consistent with their training and ability at this time. No F-16 fighting by Yeshiva Buffett. I guess the question he he's, he's really implying is that maybe this it's not the yeshiva as usual. The Rosh Hashivas and everyone should get together and think about how we could parcel people out and send them into the, the greater society to do the type of things you did, Rabbi Broid. Or should we keep the storm going? Should we keep the learning going? Which we know is what they're doing. They should engage in a heavy amount of public service and spend their time helping the community whose young men and women are in service. My 22-year-old daughter, who's a wonderful, loving Israeli, she is doing EMT shift. It would be very unwise for them to send her to the front with a gun. She's on train, she's small, all sorts of good reasons why you wouldn't send her into the front, but she is an EMT, and I take great pride in the fact that she's doing ambulance service. Halavai, this should be what our brothers in the mirror are doing now. That would be a wonderful, good thing. Just to be matzik a little bit, uh, and I'm not pushing back at all, but a a couple of days after the war began, I met someone who had attended a funeral of some of the chayalim uh, that had already uh, uh, succumbed in the first few days. And he saw a bocher from the mirror there. And the bocher didn't know he wasn't from the family at all. 
but he was there with uh, and, and and was working with the Hevri Kadisha in order to help the graves, to dig the <laughs> graves, to be to be there. And uh, he said to my friend, when my friend asked him about this, uh, he said his grandfather had been doing the same thing at the Yom Kippur War. When he was learning in yeshiva, he made sure that every single day he would be at the places where those kadoshim, those those incredibly brave members of the IDF were laid to rest. I'm not sure if if that qualifies in the same way as as what you're saying, but I think that is it going does. on. It does. It does. Going to dig graves is is a mitzvah gedola and something that requires little skill. I'm not here to articulate what exactly the people do, but if you vote our learning. As if tragedy isn't running around them. That's a mistake. You know, of course, you can always send questions to Rabbi Broid or myself. He's always uh, able and willing. Please send me an email with a question. I'm better in writing than I am in person. We should be blessed to live in a time where discussions of war fall into the area of halacha that we study because we don't have to observe and God should make sure that his loyal servants are properly rewarded for their terrible sacrifice. Thank you again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.